The Word of God of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Let's think about the origins of preterism, the origins of putting Bible prophecies for the future into the past. This whole chapter of 58 verses dealt with a problem at the church at Corinth, a church that Paul started and Paul labored with, with truly apostolic origins and foundation and instruction. They had teachers there that were denying the resurrection of the dead. I mentioned to you the 12th verse this morning, and I read it to you again. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, and that's what Paul had preached to them, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? The quick point that I want to make from this chapter is that when you read it, it's not merely and only a chapter to comfort believers about their departed relatives. It is dealing with a heresy in the church at Corinth that there were teachers there denying the resurrection of the dead. And it was a very physical resurrection. It was a resurrection of dead bodies, just like the Lord Jesus Christ was raised. And very quickly, the first 11 verses are Paul recounting the history of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. Because he points out, I preach to you what the Bible said about the resurrection of Jesus. And that he was buried and rose again from the dead the third day in verse 4, according to the scriptures. Verse 5, Peter saw him, then the twelve saw him. Verse 6, then above 500 brethren at once saw him, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James his brother, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also. So there's 11 verses where the apostle describes the historical event of the resurrection of the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ three days after dying and being buried in the tomb. In verses 12 through 19, the apostle makes an argument that if you deny the resurrection of dead bodies, you deny the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection because they are held inseparably together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if someone says to you, well, I don't believe in the resurrection of dead physical bodies, but I believe in the resurrection of Christ's dead physical body. They can't make that distinction because the apostle said, right. verse 17 if Christ is not be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. His argument here in verses 12 through 19 are that the two resurrections are inseparable, and we're going to make them that way. And when you deny the resurrection of the dead, you end up denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by default, because the Bible connects them together. In verses 20 through 28, Paul built a solid prophetic system for the future on Christ's resurrection. And he says, for instance, I'm not going to deal with this verse by verse. We've been over it before. It says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And we're talking about the physical death that happened to Adam and all that are in him, and the physical life that's going to happen to all those in Christ. Verse 23, But every man in his own order. There's an order to the events. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. There will be a resurrection at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be a resurrection just like the first fruit that came from that 
resurrection tree. And the Lord Jesus Christ was raised in such a way that they could put their fingers in the holes in his hands or thrust their hand into his side. And he ate and he drank with them, which he showed by many infallible proofs, as this is, these are Bible words, that he was alive. You can't separate the two, and we're not going to separate the two. In verses 29 through 34, the apostle proves that the ordinances of the church are turned upside down if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and we don't rise from the dead. What then are they being baptized for? Verse 29, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Verse 29 is a resurrection verse. Baptism shows a picture of resurrection. So why would we ever be baptized since it shows a picture of resurrection? If there be no resurrection of the dead. The ordinances are turned upside down. And if you heard me earlier, they're turned upside down for preterists. Because baptism is a picture of our future resurrection from the dead. Just like he's arguing right here in this verse. So by making that false assumption that the resurrection of the dead took place in 70 AD, you deny the Baptist ordinance of baptism. Right. You deny the Lord's Supper because we do it till he come as we considered this morning. Verses 35 through 50, the apostle calls them skeptical fools. He calls them fools in verse 36 that try to fuss about what kind of a body do we get in the resurrection. You know, since they can't prove it wrong theologically and they can't prove it wrong historically, we'll prove it wrong by asking questions. Well, then what kind of a body do we get when we're raised from the dead? You know what Paul called somebody asking a question like that? A fool. That's why the Bible says we don't entertain foolish and unlearned questions. We only answer the questions of those that are respectful, kind, studious, and looking to find the answer, not try to teach us something that we already know better than they know. Remember, I've been in this for 25 years. I've known about this for 25 years. My brother's known about it for 20 years and debated them, including their champion in the Church of Christ. Brother Newell's known about it. This is not any surprising doctrine. It is in some places, but it's not here. Verses 51 through 57 are inspired application of Old Testament promises that there is a physical change coming to our bodies that's going to be glorious. And because of that, verse 58 tells us that we should be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain in the Lord because of this future resurrection. It is not enough that we are going to labor, die, and our spirits go to heaven. Do you understand that? That is Gnostic type thinking. That is a part of Greek philosophy that the body is bad. That is short of the New Testament doctrine. Our bodies are good. God said they were good and very good when he made them in the first place. We corrupted them and he's going to uncorrupt them. If you allow me to coin that word. He's going to make them over again. He's going to glorify them. And verses 35 through 50 describe in inspired ambiguity and obscurity what kind of bodies we're going to have. But I want, I want to repeat what I just said. That our spirits go to heaven when we die is not good enough. The apostle draws an argument that the reward for our labors for the master Our labors for Christ our Savior are based on the resurrection of the body and us being changed. Behold, I show you a mystery in verse 51. 
We shall be changed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. We shall be changed. Now this may surprise you. You're thinking to yourself, you know, as long as my spirit goes to heaven when I die, who really cares about my body? I'm glad to get rid of it. Especially if you're older, you're glad to get rid of it. You know, it's old, it's decrepit, it's decaying, it's weak. But the Bible does not discount the value of the body like you are in your thinking. And we are going to learn to think the way the Bible does. Don't you become a Greek Gnostic on me and make the material world and your physical body sinful and ugly and and horrible and bad and evil in itself. It isn't in itself. We corrupted it with sin. We shall be changed. Amen. The whole chapter. But the, the point I wanted to make is, the church at Corinth had some form of preterist. They likely had Hymenaeus or his disciples corrupting this church to deny the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is probably the most important doctrinal fact that the apostles ever conveyed in their preaching. If you go look at the book of Acts, what was the qualification for an apostle? To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ with these eyes so that you could tell someone, I saw him. Matthias, that replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1, had to have accompanied with the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry and seen him after he rose from the dead. And only the apostles could be eyewitnesses. We take their written record and we preach the resurrection just as surely as if we had seen them. And Jesus comforted us by saying, Thomas, you have the blessing of being able to see me and see the holes in my hands. But blessed are they that don't see and believe anyway. And we believe. But there was an error there in the church at Corinth. We've been, to the, we've been to 2 Thessalonians 2 already, and obviously there was an error there. And that is that they were nervous and fearful that the second coming of Jesus Christ was close at hand, was nearby, and was about to take place. And Paul corrects that. So there was an error about the timing of the second coming in the church at Thessalonica. They weren't worried about the destruction of Jerusalem. Do you know where Thessalonica is? If I gave you a globe right now in front of the church and gave you five seconds to find Thessalonica, could you do it? What side of the Mediterranean Sea is it on? North, south, east, or west? The north side of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a thousand miles from Jerusalem. Were the Thessalonians Gentiles or Jews? Gentiles. They didn't care what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They were looking for something very different to take place. They wanted their enemies burned up. They wanted the enemies that they had in Thessalonica burned up, but that's going to happen at the second coming. And it's described in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians where it says, And you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with His mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jews having their city burned up in Jerusalem a thousand miles away, were not going to provide any rest for the Thessalonians across the Mediterranean Sea. Come now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Do you remember once when Paul was on trial? And he said, King Agrippa, do you think it's a thing incredible that God should raise the dead? See, this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, 
Let's be, let's be honest. It's pretty incredible. That's right. Who do you want to think about that's in a cemetery somewhere? I have a mother in a cemetery. I've told you I don't like her there. And neither does the Lord. And why hasn't he come already to resurrect her? Because he's long-suffering so her oldest son can repent of everything he needs to to be the Christian that he ought to be. Do you all understand that from Second Peter chapter 3? But Paul reasoned with King Agrippa. King Agrippa, when you think about the nature of a divine being or God, and you do know about Jehovah, do you think it's incredible that God would raise the dead? The answer being, no, God should be able to do that. If he can create life in the first place, he can create life in the second place, can he? He can put life back in where he took it out. Because the spirit returns to God, the Bible says, and the body turns into a clay tabernacle. But if that spirit is put back into that body, it becomes, it comes alive again. The spirit returns. So we want to think about the nature of the resurrection of dead bodies. It was a very important doctrine in the early church. And look at the attacks that Satan and false teachers made against it at Corinth, at Thessalonica, and now here. Although it's not going to be said here, we're just going to want to meet our man Hymenaeus one more time. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. You got an amen right before this verse because Paul had just lost himself in praising God. Verse 17, I mean that most respectfully. I love it when he loses himself amen. and blesses God and he said amen. Verse 18, this charge... I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Do you want to fight the Lord's battles? We've got some. Timothy, I want you to war a good warfare, and I'm giving you charge right now to live up to the prophecies that put you in the ministry. Holding faith. Holding faith. Don't let it go. And a good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here we are not told their doctrine. All we're told is that they have put away concerning faith. They're no longer holding the faith of the apostles. They no longer have a good conscience in it. And they've made shipwreck of their religion. And Paul's delivered them to Satan that they may not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Because, and here's the connection, when you deny the resurrection of the dead, which the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely promised on the basis of his own resurrection, then you are blaspheming. Because you also end up questioning or denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself by virtue of the connection Paul made in 1 Corinthians 15. I have delivered them to Satan that they learn not to blaspheme in their departure from the apostolic faith. Now 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2 and let's get this man, Hymenaeus, and the full passage. 2 Timothy 2. He was a preterist false teacher who declared the resurrection was past, whom Paul condemned to Satan for blasphemy. We start at verse 14. Paul to Timothy again. Of these things, 
put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and that every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity, because this doctrine leads to more ungodliness, because it takes away the things that are connected to the resurrection of the dead, which is the judgment of Almighty God. Right. There is no standing before the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul taught in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5 to give an account of your life to a preterist. What kind of a life do you think that's going to lead to just by doing a tiny bit of reasoning in your mind? Verse 14, Timothy put them in remembrance of these things and charged them before the Lord that they do not strive about words to no profit, but striving about words that subvert hearers and get them confused and mixed up. We don't strive about tiny little sound bites. We go look at the whole New Testament and make the whole New Testament fit together. Second Peter 3.8 has told us to disregard timing sound bites because God's timing is different than ours. One day or a thousand years to Him is the same. Listen, one day or a year is very different to me. But to the Lord, one day or a thousand years or a thousand years or one day... And you are not to forget that fact. Be not ignorant of this one thing. If some of you that want to make this as simple as possible want to know when I'm telling you something to hold on to really tight, I'm telling you something to hold on to really tight. Then when they throw their little sound bites at you, just answer with Second Peter 3.8. And if they say, well, that's not what that's talking about, then take them over there and show them the context of Second Peter 3.8 is all about the timing of the Lord's second coming, because there were scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? And the next verse says, he is not slack, as some men count slackness. And then it explains why his timing is different than ours, because he's long-suffering to usward. Not only is there a definition that God can value one day or a thousand years equally, there is an explanation It's for long-suffering. It's such a thorough passage. Hold on to that. But we're dealing with Hymenaeus here. And and he argued about words. And Paul said to Timothy, don't you let somebody build their whole house of cards on little sound bites. Don't strive about words that subvert hearers. You study to show yourself approved unto God. You take the whole word of God and you divide it up and parcel it up and apply it to what it belongs to and you make it all fit so that you don't get ashamed in your doctrine and so that you can be approved before God as a wise steward of the word of God. Right. You know, we use that verse and we quote that verse, but you are now seeing that verse in a different context than you may have ever considered it before. This verse is the death knell of preterism because they never divide a thing. Right. Every prophecy. Prophecy A and prophecy Z. 
Prophecy B and Prophecy Y. Every prophecy they can find, jam it into 70 AD. When the Bible says, rightly divide the word of truth, what do the futurists do? Prophecy A through Z into the futurist ditch. Way out in the future, we rightly divide the word of truth. Were some things fulfilled in 70 AD? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that. Are there some things being fulfilled right now? Yes, Lord, thank you. The little horn of Daniel 7, the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2. Are there some things yet to come? Absolutely. Certainly. Because we divide the word of God. Look where this passage is. I have preached long and loud about what that verse means to rightly divide the word of truth. I have proven to you that the King James choice of words of rightly divide are a linguistic and interpretational phrase describing exactly what we do with the Bible. And I went to great lengths in our Bible hermeneutics classes to show all uh, an example of many divisions that are in the Bible. Does James chapter 1 say that God tempteth no man? Does Genesis chapter 22 say God tempted Abraham? Do we make a division between the word tempt or do we let the Bible confuse itself and confuse us along with it? We rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. Verse 16, which we've covered earlier today, but in, when, while we're studying God's word, we shun and reject profane and vain babblings. We don't care who said what, and we don't care how many of them there were. We don't care when they said it. All we care about is what does God's word say? Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. If you listen to false teachers, it's going to overthrow your faith and lead you into greater ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker. It's going to eat you up like a cancer or gangrene. And Hymenaeus and Philetus had such a doctrine, and then we are told what that doctrine was. He is the father of preterism. The resurrection is past. Not that there is no resurrection. The resurrection is past. And what effect did that have? It was overthrowing the faith of some, and it was proof that they had erred from the truth, meaning that they were heretics. Heresy, or a heretic, is a person who has left what is the truth to believe and practice something else. That's all heresy is. Heresy does not mean that a person is going to hell, necessarily, although holding fast to the truth is one of the evidences of eternal life. If you've heard me two times now, once in writing, once in the first service from Colossians chapter 1, if we continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, that is an evidence of eternal life. Heresy just means that we have departed from the faith given to us by the apostles. In church history, there is no record before the Jesuit Louis del Alcazar who lived from 1554 to 1613 of anyone that ever believed preterism. He is the first man who wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, sticking the whole book of Revelation into 70 A.D. First man. You can go find out all you want to about him. His book is online. Everyone knows this. That they go back and look through, you know, sometimes, most of the time, we make fun of the church fathers, or should I say all the time we make fun of the church fathers, because the only fathers that we have are the apostles. But if you were to go back, you can't find preterism. You know, once in a while, they might take one text and make it 
have an early fulfillment, earlier than the second coming of Jesus Christ, but he's the first one that did it. There are three prophetic schemes. I've mentioned that to you. Futurism, all the prophecies in the future. Preterism, all the prophecies in the past. Because preter, preter is a Latin word meaning past. And then there is historicism, which is what we believe. In 14 and 1500s, think historically with me. Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. What kind of books were they printing back then? Pulp novels for the Walmarts? What, what books were they printing? Bibles. What were flooding off those presses? Bibles. As people read the Bibles, what did they learn about the mother church in Rome, Italy? That she was indeed the mother church. She was the mother of harlots and the mother of abominations of the earth. What did they learn about the Pope? That he was the little horn of Daniel 7 and that he was the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2. That he was the beast, the church, the the priesthood, the papacy was the beast, the great whore, the false prophet of the book of Revelation. And so a great deal of attention became focused on Rome and the Catholic Church and the Pope of Rome. And he was identified as the Antichrist. I have... A hundred or two hundred links in the outline that I've prepared so far, and I'm going to tell you about one of them, and it's easy to find in a Google search. Just type in historicism, preterism, futurism, Jesuits. And you, you can read for a while on what happened in a period of time called the Counter-Reformation. The Reformation began in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Ninety-five problems that he found with the Catholic Church. And from there it just exploded. All the fingers were pointing at the Pope. The Bibles were being printed everywhere. William Tyndale was getting them done in English. Everyone was pointing to Rome and the papacy as the greatest enemy of Christianity and the Antichrist and man of sin prophesied in the Bible, and they had Scripture in their hands to prove it. Another historical event took place, and it's called the Counter-Reformation. I'm not making this up. Go type in Counter-Reformation in a Google search box. The Counter-Reformation was the Roman Catholic Church's response to the Reformation. It was the Roman Catholic Church's response to Bibles flooding Europe that were identifying Rome as the Antichrist. Church membership was falling. It's called the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was to turn the attention away from Rome so that they could continue to grow. In some of these websites, you will be able to read some of the church councils they had where they forbid even their priests to preach on the subject of Antichrist because they couldn't even allow anyone to come close to teaching that the popes were the Antichrist and that the Roman Catholic Church was the great whore of Revelation 17. The Jesuits came up with two schemes of prophecy. Because see, what was pointing out the Pope as the Antichrist was prophetic interpretation of the Bible. It's the little horn of Daniel 7. And when I say that, it hurts me, but I also understand the difference in our jobs every day 
that all of you don't know what I'm referring to when I say the little horn of Daniel 7. That little, that four beasts, the fourth one being Rome, had ten horns, meaning the Roman Empire had been destroyed and had broken up into smaller sub-nations. That took, that's 476 AD. And out of that came a little horn, the papacy of Rome, that for 1260 years persecuted Christians. And you can read all about it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's what I mean by the little horn of Daniel 7. So they came up, the Jesuits wrote some books, some commentaries on Revelation, easily traceable, online, and you can see who translated them into English, and you can see Edward Irving and John Darby and C.I. Schofield coming out of the train of the Jesuit commentary that made all of Revelation future, the man of sin future, to get the heat off the Roman Catholic Church. At the same time, Louis del Elcazar wrote a commentary on Revelation putting all the events before 70 A.D. Both systems have nothing to say about the Roman Catholic Church. Not a thing. Everything in the New Testament was fulfilled in 70 A.D. to a preterist. He doesn't give a rip about Roman Catholicism or the Pope, even though she's guilty of the blood of millions of Christians during the Dark Ages of Europe. Futurism puts everything out in the future where some future head of the United Nations is going to be the great enemy. They don't care about the Roman Catholic Church. So they miss what everyone believed because they designed it as false teachers of a high order and very well trained Jesuits wrote commentaries taking either your prophetic interpretation of the Bible and putting it before 70 AD, preterism, or way out in the future, unrelated to anything you would ever know, futurism. And guess what? Neither system cares about Roman Catholicism, while the greatest enemy that we've had to deal with for 1,200 years, from about 600 to 1,800, was Rome. The abominations that have crept in. Why do Presbyterians sprinkle babies? Why Why is there a word called sacrament? in so-called Protestant churches. Where did all this stuff come from? Well, that's where preterism came from. The Counter-Reformation. The book that I told you about that's lying here beside my pulpit, the Perugia, in 1878. But nobody believed it in the 20th century, hardly, until 1971, when some wild Church of Christ preachers in the state of Ohio began to preach full preterism. Max King, Tim King, his son, Donald Preston, Edward Stevens. These names, if you've ever read any of the the history of preterism, got it all rolling. And then it's been Presbyterians and Reformed churches of the Reconstructionist Dominion theology, theonomy thinking, that have picked up on it. Now, not all of them are full preterists. Some of them are partial preterists. But they have helped popularize partial preterism And once a person has got into partial preterism, where many of those passages that I showed you earlier are fulfilled in 70 A.D., it's hard for them not to go all the way. Preterism denies the gospel, and that's where we go. Before we go home, let me give you a couple of things that you put in your hand and you never let go. Because preterism denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said there was... There were teachers at Corinth that he was afraid of that would teach another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. 
He said that they were ministers of Satan. In verses 13 through 15 of that same 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. He told the Galatians that they had left the gospel that he had taught to them, which was not really another, it was a perversion of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to look at a heresy and see where it denies plain statements of the true gospel. And then we will grab those plain statements of the true gospel and we can say, well, I know that's false because I have these plain statements of the true gospel that I can read for myself in a Bible. And I know that all Christians have believed these things for 2,000 years. I'm going to save your sanity by not wasting our time or my effort or your confusion to deal with, to show you how preterists deal with every verse in the New Testament. Their exegesis is sick. What they can do to a 1 Corinthians 15 would amaze you. We read 1 Corinthians 15 and we love it. Look at the resurrection of the dead. We're going to be changed. Amen. I'm going to get a new body. Nothing. Whole chapter is just blown out and spiritualized away, not to have a thing to do with your physical body. We'll turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The simplest and wisest response to any heresy is to create an irreducible minimum that refutes them. Right. We want to take the fewest points possible that the Bible requires to be a Christian and refute them that way. We're going to refute them some other ways as well because I don't like giving up an ending with the irreducible minimum. I want to do with the constantly expanding maximum. If you're, you know, if a 38 special will work, a 357 magnum will work better. That's just the way I think. And I hope I'm the Lord's soldier and wants to fight the Lord's battle. And if a 357 magnum will work, a 44 magnum will work even better. And I have recently discovered that a Smith & Wesson 500 Magnum, four times a 44 Magnum, will work even better. And so I want to take our 66 Magnum and spend a little bit more than just today with you. Right. Our Bible, 66 books. Acts chapter 1. The first thing we want to do, we're going to reduce, we are going to reduce all the arguments that could be made to three. And the three are connected because the Bible says they all happen together. Right. In order to, so that we can do this in just a few minutes, I have to change where you're looking. Please go to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is going to give us a little list of the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Right. And are there some elements in that list that preterists deny that we can lay hold of and say, it is in that list and I'm not going to give it up. And that refutes preterism because you are denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we go. Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, notice what we're talking about. 
We're talking about the fundamental axioms. We're talking about the foundational truths of Christianity. We're talking about the basic building blocks of the Christian religion. They are mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 5. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. God's revelation to us of truth has these basic building blocks. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, they are called the principles of the doctrine of Christ. They are like the the axioms you have to memorize in geometry, or you can't go anywhere in that math discipline. You have to memorize some axioms and hold to them, and they will serve you all the way through that subject. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation. These are foundational truths. And here we go, as he lists a few of them to say, we're moving on. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Christianity is founded on repenting of all dead works of any kind, including the works of the law of Moses. And of faith toward God. These are foundational things. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That is a foundational requirement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the doctrine of baptisms. Multiple baptisms of every single individual, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism of fire, and so forth. The doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, the granting of miracle power to the apostles, and the ordination authority that they had. And then look at these last two of the list of six and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So here are six things that the apostle tells us are principles of Christianity. They are basic, foundational, building block doctrines of our religion, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And two of those, preterism denies. The last two, they deny the resurrection of the dead and they deny eternal judgment. Now they say both happened in 70 AD, but everyone knows that all men were not raised in 70 AD. Do you know what it would have looked like if in 70 AD all men, the elect and reprobates, the good and the evil, were all raised from the cemeteries? Do you know what kind of an event that would have been? It didn't happen. Everyone knows it didn't happen. So they end up spiritualizing it away so that there is no resurrection of the dead. Because when it says resurrection of the dead, it's not talking about your spirit because your spirit never dies. It's talking about your body. We are talking about a resurrection of dead physical bodies like my mother's, which you saw when you saw us bury. And then eternal judgment. And see, these happen together. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I'm not going to go to other verses. 
do you all know thoroughly from the Bible that when Jesus Christ comes the next time, the resurrection takes place right then, and then it's time for eternal judgment. We stand before God and we give an account of our lives right then. Those three events are inseparable. So let's start with the first one in Acts chapter 1. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is ever going to return to earth. Acts chapter 1. They say He already returned. But there's no record in pagan or Christian history of Him ever returning the way He promised He would return. We agree that He came in a spiritual sense, in a judgmental sense, in judging Israel. Because the Bible tells us so. But this coming, He never did. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. Jesus has given His final words of instruction to the apostles in the 8th verse. And when He had spoken these things, while they beheld, that means they were looking and seeing, He was taken up, and a cloud received Him out of their sight, meaning they were seeing and looking. And while they looked, that means they were seeing and looking steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing, which means they were looking, seeing, and watching, up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, As ye have seen, that means they were looking and seeing and watching him go into heaven. Okay? Do you have, is there any confusion about that text? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back the very way he left because that's what the angels said. You will see him, watch him, gaze on him and behold him because he's going to show himself and reveal himself and he has not done that yet. That he came spiritually and figuratively in judging Jerusalem will grant. This is unfulfilled. And when he comes is the resurrection of the dead. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23? But Christ the first fruits and then they that are Christ at his coming. It's all, those are tied together. That's the irreducible minimum. And there are two things that are part of the principles of Christ. When you deny these two things, you are leaving the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a horrible thing. Futurism does not deny these things. Futurism believes that Jesus Christ is returning physically and visibly. Left behind has Jesus coming. He's just out in the wrong order. But He's coming back. And there's going to be a resurrection of dead physical bodies. And there's going to be an eternal judgment where everybody gives an account of their lives to God. So we've reduced it to these three things that are inseparably tied together that the Bible lists as principles, foundational, building blocks, essentials, axioms of the Christian religion, which babes in Christ ought to know. Because it's the milk. It's the simple things. It's the first things. We should never leave these things. We should never even allow the thought that there isn't a visible, personal, bodily, literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ with the raising of dead bodies, good and bad. So let's add that one. Let's go to John chapter 5. You know, there's many places we could go because the resurrection of the dead is taught throughout Scripture. 
And do you know there are many other places I could go to tell you that Jesus would come again? For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Not an image, not a shining, not an appearing. He Himself, the Lord Himself, shall descend from heaven with a shout. And with the voice of the archangel, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. See how they're tied together? So we've, we've reduced the gospel to a couple of simple points, and they're three because they're all tied together. We're going to leave out the millennium. We're going to leave out the new heavens and the new earth for the moment because we want to reduce it to the basics of what's required in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. John chapter 5, verse 28. Marvel not at this. He has just described a spiritual resurrection in verses 24 and 25. And the Lord Jesus goes on to say, Marvel not at this, because you want to see a real marvel? Here's something to marvel about. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Notice that we are talking about graves, and we are talking about the voice of the Son of God, and we see all dead bodies coming forth, good and evil, to two different results of the one judgment of the Holy God. There it is. The resurrection of all dead bodies out of graves, at the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. Come forth. Oh, everybody, Cain, Abel, are going to come out of that ground and they're going to stand before God and it will be time for the judgment. Preterists deny that event. They say it happened in 70 AD. Do you know what Paul thinks of somebody who says the resurrection is past? They err from the truth. They overthrow the faith of some. It's profane and vain babblings. Right. It increases more ungodliness. And he turns them over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme and say such things. Well, the judgment is right here in verse 29. Why should I turn you anywhere else? We've got the resurrection in verse 28 and 29 and the judgment in verse 29. It is appointed to men once to die. And after this, the judgment. The next event that's going to happen is when those bodies are raised out of their tombs and stand before God. These are three things that are fundamental to Christianity. At this point, we have three important doctrines that are they're inseparable. The reason there's three and there's only two in Hebrews 6 is because the return of the Lord Jesus Christ triggers both of them. The resurrection of the dead occurs at His coming. So we have His coming, His second coming. And what is that coming like? How does the Bible describe it? We're going to see Him. Job said, I will see Him with my eyes, and they won't be the eyes of another. I won't be embodied with a new body. I'm going to see Him with these eyes. And though after my skin, worms destroy this whole body, I will see God in that body. And that has been the hope of believers before the New Testament, in the New Testament, and after the New Testament. No one except a few radical heretics like Hymenaeus ever believed that the resurrection was past. The whole Christian church, and you've never heard me use that word, 
so loosely as I am right now. In the whole Christian church, I'm going to say that again. You have never heard me use it so loosely. Did they ever believe in a preteristic idea that the resurrection had occurred in 70 AD, that Jesus Christ had come back, and that there had already been eternal judgment, and the devil and his angels had been cast into the lake of fire in 70 AD. So all you have to do as we depart today is take this irreducible minimum. This is as small as we can get because of Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Those two doctrines and the doctrine that is inseparably connected to them, and that is Christ's return, which triggers them both. Jesus Christ is going to return visibly. We're going to see Him. It's going to be a phenomenal event. At that time, every dead body, good and evil, it's not just that there's only a few saved, and so only a few are resurrected. All men are going to be resurrected. Then there is going to be the day of judgment. And at that time, the wicked will be cast in the lake of fire where the devil has been cast and the righteous will be accepted into heaven. That hasn't happened. That's where we stand. We say, I'm a Christian. Hebrews 6, 1 through 3 tells me that to be a Christian, I have to believe these six things as basic foundational truths. The last two, preterism denies. I must deny preterism because it denies the physical, visible, personal return of Jesus Christ the resurrection of all dead bodies, and the day of judgment where we will all give an account of our lives. The righteous will be judged righteous through the complete and perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the wicked will be judged wicked for their sins and the sins of Adam. And therefore, I cannot be a preterist. And therefore, I must say to you that if you're going to believe the doctrine of preterism, you have denied the Christian faith. You are anti-Christian because you have denied two of the six principles of the doctrine of Christ. You're guilty of heresy. Repent of it and join us in believing those six things. That's what we want to say when we meet a preterist. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.